Welcome. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. It's, uh, it's my joy to be bringing the sermon this morning. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles, get them out, open up to John chapter 16. Uh, you know, we're continuing through the Gospel of John series. Uh, chapter 16, verses 4 through 15 is our focus today. Uh, I'll do a little bit of bouncing around with other scriptures, but if you keep your Bible open there, you'll be able to follow along with most of what I'm, I'm going to be talking about today. So, um, John chapter 16, the second part of verse 4 through verse 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak Not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Please bow your heads and let's begin with some prayer before we dive into God's word. Father, thank you for this day that you've made, this day that your sovereign hand has ordained. We are here to worship you as a family. We ask, Lord, that you would guide our time this morning. Holy Spirit, for those who do not know you here this morning, we pray that you would open blind eyes, heal deaf ears, and regenerate dead hearts to life as your gospel is proclaimed. And for your saints, Lord, lead us into all truth as all truth is is yours. We are desperate for your work, not only in salvation, but in rightly handling your scriptures. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning's passage was particularly difficult for me when I began digging into it. I knew that there was something deeper than the cursory reading that I'd given it, but, but it was work. I had, to, I had to search it to figure out what was going on. Um, last week, we were at our high school camp, Rock and Water, where we do a whole bunch of different like mountain adventures, canyoneering and rock climbing and uh, water rafting. Not my favorite. Um, while we were on our raft floating down the river, our guide was trying to calm me down, and so he told this little riddle. The riddle went something like this. There were two penguins rowing a kayak in the middle of the desert. One penguin was named Scamper. He said to penguin number two, where's your paddle? Penguin number two said, sure does. Now, normally, I'm a huge fan of riddles. I I really enjoy listening to words and trying to figure out, like, what's the play here? How, How are they using that word? Like, what do they mean? However, I was in a raft floating down a river to my certain demise. So when our raft guide gave us this fun little riddle, all I could do was say, there's penguins in the desert, they're dead, this is dumb, stop. I've got things to focus on here. (laughs) For those of you who don't know me, rafting is zero fun for me. It's not something I enjoy. Now, my students have loved it, so I will go with them. But otherwise, no. (laughs) You won't find me doing that on my own for sheer pleasure. I guess... When death is on the line, I just get serious. It's not fun. Uh, Back to my point, though. Usually the things that stick out to us in a passage of Scripture, things that seem like they're out of place or uh, like they're words in a riddle, when we consider them carefully, typically they'll prove to us that every word matters. Every word has meaning, and God does not waste words. Now, 
unlike the riddle with silly names and strange concepts of penguins in a desert, those words still have meaning for the riddle. It's meant to draw you away from the purpose of it. But the scriptures don't waste any words that way because they are the very words of God. Like the word where in the riddle can be used in different ways and is itself the key to understanding the riddle, passages that seem to be out of place or not fit well usually have a very important connection and multiple purposes. I find oftentimes that verses like that are the key to understanding the greater passage surrounding it. And that's what we're going to see in our reading today. By the way, for those of you wanting to figure out the riddle, here you go. If you're rowing a paddle in desert sand, it wears the paddle. So when the first penguin said, where's the paddle? The second penguin said, sure does. If you you run something through sand, it wears it down. Uh, I'd originally not wanted to share like the punchline of it, but then I was uh, given some great advice that no one will listen to anything else I say if I don't give them the answer to the riddle. So um, let's move on. Uh, Usually, it's very helpful for me to look at a section of Scripture and to break it down into a few main points so that we have an outline to kind of follow. I hope that's helpful for you as well. There are three main points in our passage this morning. The first point I want us to see is the shepherd's love for his sheep. The second point is the role of the Spirit in the world. And the third point is the role of the Spirit in the apostles. So point one, the shepherd's love for his sheep. Point two, the role of the Spirit in the world. And point three, the role of the Spirit in the apostles. So let's jump into point one, the shepherd's love for his sheep. John 16, 4b through 7. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, the standout verse that I was referring to in my introduction is verse 5. When Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? At first glance, this verse just seems out of place. You see, up until this point, Christ has been warning his disciples about the things to come after he leaves. He's been following that up with encouragement. I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send the Spirit. It's going to help you. in light of what he's been warning them about, namely the persecution that will happen to them after he leaves, we have this little verse here in the middle of it that says, I'm going to go to the Father, and by the way, none of you are asking me where I'm going. So in my first point this morning, I want us to see the grace and the gentleness, the love of Christ for his disciples, and how truly amazing Jesus' love is. Just think about what's about to happen to Jesus. He's going to go through false trials, beatings. He's going to be mocked. He's going to have the flesh torn from his body by whips. There's going to be more mocking, a crown of thorn pounded onto his head, a robe stuck to his open wounds and then torn off again, crucifixion. And all of these things pale in comparison, by a long shot, to Jesus bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the elect. It's simply amazing to me that Jesus is still concerning himself with the worry and the turmoil that is stirring in the hearts of his disciples. And he comforts them, even though they're missing the point you must see the compassion that Jesus has for his sheep here. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And he will go on to say in verse 12 that there is more to say, but that they cannot bear it now. So for the parents in the room, let me ask you this. Have you ever protected your child from a known danger because you were with them and you were able to do so? It reminds me of my mom Every time we were driving anywhere and I was in the front seat, if she hit those brakes even slightly, she did this arm thing, right? 
Like, a few times I wonder if it's just a cheap shot, like she's just trying to get back at me for something. But she, she did this arm thing as if the seatbelt that was holding me there wasn't going to work. It was her natural reaction, her instinct to protect her baby, right? I know nobody's looking at me going, baby, you were never big. <laughs> so it's a very natural thing for parents that when they're present, they, they will protect their children, How about this? Have you ever kept something from your child that you knew would be hard for them to understand and bear, but in your maturity and love for your child, you knew that you could wait for a better time to share those things, perhaps a time when the weight of those truths would not be so crushing? So that's what we see here in this passage. There are two points happening here that are equally beautiful for the disciples. The first is this. While Jesus was with his disciples, he took the focus of the world's hate upon himself. In fact, he's preparing to do this in the greatest way imaginable by being murdered at the cross for his beloved. You see, Jesus, as a good shepherd does, fought off the wolves and the attacks while he was with his sheep. And as we know from the past few weeks, Jesus is preparing the disciples here for what's to come when he is no longer with them. Which brings us to the second point in this statement. Jesus knew that the disciples would not have been able to bear these truths yet. It's not as if Jesus didn't know this time was coming, but he spared his sheep the worry until the proper time, as a good parent does. So like a loving parent would take on the attack of others to protect their child, we see the shepherd while the sheep were... We see the shepherd while the sheep were protected by him, drawing the attention of hatred and and anger to himself. And just like a loving parent protects their child from exposure to unnecessary things that they are able to handle, or that they are unable to handle, Christ protects his disciples from hard truths until the necessary time. Church, see the love of Christ for his disciples here. We see the shepherding love another way when we see Jesus gently rebuke his disciples in verse 5 and 6. Verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now this passage does much more than just seem to be out of place. It actually helps us understand the rest of what Jesus will say in the next few verses. But it has a practical and immediate application as well. Christ warns the disciples about their future, and he gently rebukes them for their self-focus and failure to ask the proper questions. He said, I didn't say these things to you because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. You see, this rebuke is twofold. First, Jesus says, you're going to suffer these things in your near future. However, they're here for me now. And none of you seems concerned for me. Sorrow has filled your heart, but it doesn't appear that the sorrow is for Christ, as they did not even ask him about what he was going to be going or where he was going to be going. The second part of the rebuke is Jesus unpacking for his disciples the realities that would come from what was about to happen to him. Their hearts would not be filled with self-centered sorrow if they rightly understood the reality of eternal life secured by what Christ was about to do. The rebuke is to show them that if they knew what it meant spiritually for God's people, that Christ was returning to the Father to take his position at the right hand of the Father, then they would realize that Jesus' death does not lead to their loss, but rather to their gain. And it does this in a way that nothing else can, not even Jesus remaining with them in the flesh. These are truths they should have known by now. Now, what strikes me the most here is the simple quickness of this rebuke and then the comforting that immediately follows it. Jesus spends two verses telling the disciples that they're missing something and that their worry is self-centered then he immediately goes back to comforting and reassuring them of the things to come. I call this a gentle rebuke based on its brevity 
and the quickness with which Jesus brings reassurance to his disciples in verse 7. Verse 7 reads, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So because Christ told the disciples about the suffering they would endure, their hearts are filled with sorrow. Christ said, your hearts aren't filled with sorrow for me and the suffering that I will endure, but for yourselves and what you will endure. And then that's the end of Jesus' rebuke. He immediately moves from this to reminding his disciples that the Spirit who is to come will comfort them, will lead them, protect them. This is why verse 7 begins with the word, nevertheless. Jesus is saying to his disciples, even though your hearts are only concerned with your suffering, even though you're missing the point of the necessity for me to return to the Father, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage if I go. So that begs the question, why is it an advantage? It's an advantage because this is the very purpose of Christ's coming to begin with. We must realize that if Christ does not go to the cross and take upon himself the wrath of God for the elect, resurrect from the dead, and ascend to the right hand of the Father, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient, then there would be no salvation, no eternal life or blessing, no Pentecost, and no church. Ultimately, if Christ does not fulfill what only he could fulfill, we would be hopeless. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 25. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet." You see, when we rightly understand that without Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that our faith would be futile, then we can rightly understand the point that Jesus is making in our passage today. You see, this has always been the plan. Christ must fulfill this work to complete God's eternal plan and take his throne. This is Jesus' victory over sin and death for the elect. And it is our victory in Christ. If Christ does not go away or fulfill this plan, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. However, if Jesus does go, when he has accomplished all that the Father has given him to do, he will send the Spirit in a special way that the world had not seen up until this point. Now, in regards to this passage about Jesus sending the Spirit, there are a few things that need to be clarified. First, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, which means there is no place that the Holy Spirit does not exist. This passage was not saying that it is new for the Spirit to be present with man. The Spirit has always been present with man. 
we know from all of Scripture, or what we refer to as tota scriptura, and the doctrine of salvation, that the Holy Spirit has been on the scene from creation until now. He is the active member of the triune Godhead in the regeneration of a sinner's dead heart, and he indwells all the believers that he saves. And this has always worked this way. Jesus was pointing his disciples ahead to something else, something that we refer to as Pentecost. This is a day when the Spirit would act in an increased display of his power, a display that the disciples had not seen before that day. On this day, God the Holy Spirit would cause uneducated men to speak languages they had never spoke, to interpret languages they had never learned, to perform miracles that would prove that they had the authority from God. Jesus pointed to this as well. He continually pointed out to the Pharisees that the miracles he did proved he was indeed the Christ he claimed to be. These miracles, speaking foreign languages, healing people, they were given as a proof that the apostles were indeed speaking on behalf of God. You see, what we see in this section of our passage this morning is Jesus, the loving shepherd, warn his disciples about what's to come, gently rebuke them for where their eyes and their hearts are focused, and then reaffirm the plan that he is sending a helper and that he is victorious. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he's about to lay down his life for his sheep. What greater proof is needed of Jesus' deep love for his elect? This leads us to our second point. Jesus said, I will send the Spirit, and here is what the Spirit will do, first, in regards to the world, and second, in regards to the apostles. So point number two, the role of the Spirit in the world. John 16, verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. In the fullness of our passages today, we see a distinction made between the world and the disciples who Jesus was speaking to. We see this contrast more clearly when we look at verse 12 and 13. In verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You see the distinction between verse 8 when it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world. And verse 13, when he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. There's a clear distinction going on here. Now, the distinction is between you and the world, or the disciples and unbelievers. Since that distinction is clear, we can continue on with this section of point two. The cool thing about point two for me was that it, it lays out three more points. It's like a little mini-sermon inside of a sermon. But I was worried about you type A'ers, so, so what I did was I made this point A, B, and C so as not to confuse you, so you can keep track of everything. So type A'ers afterwards, I'll, I'll be, you can thank me out there. Don't, don't worry about that right now. So type A, or sorry, type A. <laughs> point A, I already messed it up. Never mind, you don't have to thank me now. Point A, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Verse 9 reads, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, we've already established that this passage is primarily about the unbelieving world. Since that's the case, we need to see this is not the conviction of sin for those whom God would save. This is actually showing us that at Pentecost, the point of sending the Spirit in regards to his work against the world of unbelievers would be to confirm what Christ had already done and add guilt to an unbelieving world for how they had treated Jesus. When the Spirit was sent at Pentecost, there was an increase of the guilt for the reprobate or unbelieving world because of their unbelief in light of the work that Christ had done. There is a uniqueness to the sin of unbelief that the Spirit convicts the world of here. 
the guilt of unbelief is increased in a way when someone sees a miracle done, for example, and refuses to believe in the Lord of the miracle. Or when the gospel is preached through foreign human languages and people remain in unbelief. Unbelievers have always been condemned by their sin or their unbelief, but there's a heightened display of their folly when the Spirit works around them in a spectacular way and they remain haters of God. There is more guilt for the continued and extra hardening of heart against God when he displays his truth through Christ and the Spirit in a greater way. This makes sense. When we do this in our own life, think about how frustrated you get when you're trying to convince somebody that you're right about something. I knew my wife was going to look up. She, she got her head down. I was like, I was waiting for it. But when you know you're right about something and you're trying to convince somebody, it's frustrating. Now, this doesn't line up one for one with God. He doesn't get frustrated by man. But when you provide literal physical evidence to that person that you are right, and they still deny it, how frustrating is that? So you can see how easy that connection is. There is a greater guilt for those unbelievers who actually witnessed Christ perform these miracles and continue to harden their heart and refuse to believe. Now, every act of those who do not believe in God is an act of sin. Let me say it this way. Apart from faith, all that a man can do is sin. This does not mean you sin as much as you can. Many who are not saved could be worse sinners than they are. However, the truth remains that apart from faith, you cannot do anything that pleases God. One of the biblical definitions of sin can be said this way. Anything not done for the glory of God is sin. Now, that probably catches the ears of a few believers in here too, right? If not, I'm going to say it again. Listen carefully. Anything not done unto the glory of God is sin. You see, the logical connection to the unbeliever here is easy. If you don't believe in God, then you don't do anything unto his glory. Therefore, all that you do is sinful, and it misses the point of you having been created to glorify your creator. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he will convict people of the sin. Jesus makes this point here that the root of the unbelieving world's sin is quite simply unbelief. He says the Spirit convicts of the sin because they do not believe in me. In the Gospel of John alone, we have seen Jesus warn people about unbelief multiple times up until this point. In fact, in many of those passages, Jesus said, not only have I told you the truth about me, that I am the Messiah, but the miracles I've done in front of you prove that I am who I say I am. But you do not believe. In today's passage, Jesus is saying that the Spirit will come and convict the world because they have failed to believe into him. The world will not be excused from their guilt. Jesus coming in the flesh, fulfilling all the prophecy of the Messiah, and raising from the dead to the right hand of the Father brings a greater level of guilt to the unbeliever because of the extra level of revelation that proves Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead. That is why the Holy Spirit will convict of sin due to unbelief. And just consider what Jesus said a few verses earlier in John chapter 15, verses 22 through 25. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now, Josh made it clear in his sermons on these passages that Jesus does not mean if he never came, they wouldn't be guilty of sin and separated from God. Every man born of Adam is born guilty, sinful, and enslaved to sin. 
Because of this sin, every man born of Adam is eternally separated from God apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. The guilt that Jesus spoke of in this passage was an extra storing up of wrath for their unbelief because of the unique way in which they were shown the truth and yet in their sins still suppressed the truth to their own guilt. So what else does the Spirit do in regards to unbelievers? Point B, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. Verse 10 reads, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. When Jesus ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, while God the Father makes his enemies a footstool under Jesus' feet, he proves that he was the righteous one. When I said verse 5 seemed out of place at first, what I came to realize is that it actually lays the foundation for what Jesus would proclaim about the Spirit's work here. Jesus said he was returning to the Father, and then the Spirit would do all of these things. In Matthew 22, we get a clear picture of what this means. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. That's kind of the mic drop comment from Jesus. It was done. They didn't dare ask him any more questions. You see, when Jesus returns to the Father, he takes his throne at the right hand of God the Father. And God the Father makes Jesus' enemies his footstool. The Holy Spirit's work in judging the world concerning righteousness is the beginning of this process. The world is judged because the world killed the righteous one. Jesus proved through his death, resurrection, and ascension, returning to the Father and taking his throne, that he was indeed the Messiah he claimed to be, and that the only way for man to ever have righteousness was through him. The Spirit will convict the world for their lack of righteousness and their guilt of not believing into the only righteous one who could save them. Now the verse that seems so out of place proves to be the foundation to all that Christ unpacks here. Church, how awesome is the word of God? We see the truth about the righteous one in Acts 3, verses 13 through 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witness. You see, Christ going to the Father only confirms that Jesus was this righteous one. There is no one else that can provide the righteousness that we must have to be in the presence of God. You see, an unbelieving world is guilty concerning righteousness because Christ is who he said he was. And he is now at the right hand of the Father, proving that he is the Messiah, the righteous one. That brings us to point C. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. Verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit convicts the unbelieving world concerning judgment because Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the proof of God's judgment against the sinner and the ruler of this world. Now let's not get this confused. The ruler of this world is not sovereign over the world. Again, we see the term world here is in reference to the unbeliever. For those of us in Christ, we are not enslaved to sin or under the authority of the ruler of this world. For those still in their sin, they are enslaved to sin, and they are under the rule of the prince of the power of the air. And apart from faith in Christ, 
They will remain slaves to sin and Satan, and they will be judged as Satan and will be found condemned. I don't want you to miss the hope of the gospel, though. Even those dead in sin and enslaved are not outside the sovereign power and rule of our God. He can and does save all his sheep, and every one of us in here were at one time enslaved to sin. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. This passage reminded me of a quick illustration that I want to share with you. A uh, pastor that I really enjoy uh, listening to and watching on YouTube often goes to the abortion mill in his hometown, and he preaches to the people going in there. He, He begs for them to save the life of their child. He shares the gospel, he witnesses, and the amazing thing is through his work and other churches that have followed, there's hundreds of testimonies of life life that wasn't killed. What strikes me the most, and one of the ones that I watched, was that there was a group of people there protesting against him and against the church. They happened to attend another building called the the Satanic Temple. So there are literally Satan worshipers at the abortion mill fighting against him who's proclaiming the gospel. And when I watched this, I just thought, if the the people of the Satanic Temple come and they're fighting on my side, something's wrong with that picture. If the Satan worshipers are my allies in my fight, something has gone terribly wrong. I don't know about you, but if the Satanic Temple is fighting on the same side as you, if they are fighting as your ally for the same thing you're fighting for, that should terrify you. Listen, if the satanic temple is on your side, you're on the wrong side. That's what this Ephesians passage begins with. It says those that are in sin are dead, enslaved, and walking in the way of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And what you must hear is that every one of us were dead in sin at some point following the ruler of this world. At some point, we were all allies of Satan. And Jesus was saying that when he would ascend and fulfill all that God said he would, he would send the Holy Spirit and the Spirit would convict those unbelievers who remain hard-hearted and unrepentant haters of God and that they will be judged along with Satan and found guilty. The good news is it doesn't end there. I want to read verses 4 through 9 again. And if you're in here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, just listen to this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so incredible. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's not a believer in here today, a believer, because they figured it out. If you are in here today and you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, it's because of God. It's because of his great mercy. And if you are in here today and you are still in sin, if you are an unbeliever, then heed this warning and repent of your sin and trust in Christ for your salvation. It is my prayer that you wouldn't leave here today an ally of Satan, but that God would save you as he saved me, as he saved every one of my brothers and sisters in here. Now, just like this Ephesians passage ends on a good note, our passage for today also ends on a good note. So let's move to our final point, point three, the role of the Spirit in the apostles. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, there's so much going on in these four verses, but I would need to like preach to you until tomorrow to get through all that, so we're going to have to definitely summarize some of this. Now, as a quick side note, I just want to point you to the beautiful unity of our triune God at work in these passages. The Spirit glorifies Jesus by taking what's his and declaring it to the apostles. All that the Father has is Jesus's. The Spirit speaks what he hears. There's no fighting for glory or taking from each other, just complete and perfect, beautiful unity. So back to our main point. Verse 13 reads, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. So the first thing Christ assures the apostles of is that the Holy Spirit will guide them in all truth. I continue to use the word apostle because these truths were shared specifically with those men at Pentecost. The apostles would be responsible for writing the scriptures and establishing God's church. Now, you and I today, we have those truths via the scriptures. But they aren't shared with us in that same way as they were with the apostles. The clearest proof of the Spirit having revealed these truths, as Jesus said he would, is shown by what the apostles wrote down, the scriptures that we have. They are the writings, the words of God. Um, sorry, they were writing the words of God by the direction of the Holy Spirit, And that is why and how you and I have these truths today. The Spirit led every author of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. That's why Scripture is called Theonustos. I probably pronounced that wrong. But that means God breathed. It's important to know that this was the Spirit's work because the Scriptures are the very words of God. And we as Christians give them ultimate authority in our lives. If that's the case, they they had better be the words of God. The second thing Jesus said in this verse was the Spirit would reveal things that were to come. This is why we have books like Revelation written by the Apostle John. Same apostle who writes the gospel that we're reading through today. Any prophecy of future events in the New Testament scripture prove Jesus' claim to be true, that the Spirit would indeed reveal to the apostles what was to come. Now, 
To be clear, these truths and future revelation come to us through the work of the apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit. So through the scriptures, the Spirit has revealed these things to us as well. However, the Spirit does not audibly speak to us now. The Spirit reveals his truth to us through his word and helping us understand it. But this is not done the same way that the Spirit did this at Pentecost for the apostles who were with Jesus. We are still desperate for the Spirit's work to rightly understand the Scriptures, to rightly apply the Scriptures to our lives, to empower us to obey them and to honor God with them. However, we do not receive revelation from God like the apostles did. If we did we could rightly claim to speak on behalf of God and declare that the canon of Scripture should not be closed because we have more to add to it. Now, I don't have enough time to dive really deep into this topic, but church, I want to warn you to avoid this misunderstanding. Do you know that four of the world's major false religions have done this? They've added to the Word of God. They've written their own books. They've taken from the Word of God, all claiming to have been told by God to do so. Because of this action, millions of people have been led astray. Now, more practically, this happens in people's lives in this way. When a professing believer is living in sin and another believer lovingly confronts them about it, there's an unfortunate but very common response that goes something like this. Uh, It's okay for me to do this. God and I are good. Uh, I feel like God is okay with this, or some would go so far as to say, "It's, it's okay, God told me that this is okay, that the Spirit has told me that this was okay. That's when we must go to the Scriptures and lovingly warn them that whatever Spirit told them that that sin was okay, It was not the Spirit of God. Because God's Word says something very different, and the Spirit will never lead you differently than the Scriptures declare. Now, this is just a brief illustration of what happens when we misunderstand these truths. So we must see and hold to the truth that the canon is closed because we have what we need from God. The Scriptures are sufficient. When Jesus said that the Spirit would take what is his and declare it to the disciples who were with him, there is no doubt that the Spirit did this. Now, one more keynote. Jesus said that the Spirit would reveal all truth. That is all truth that is necessary for our life. And the Spirit did reveal this to the apostles. We have it right here. All truth necessary for the Christian to live the life that God has called them to live. All of it is here. Jesus did not fail us, and neither did the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So church, don't take this for granted. Praise God for his word. Don't feel like you've been cheated because the Holy Spirit doesn't audibly speak to you. You have more revelation than most generations that have ever existed. So I told you that I had three main points in our passage today. The first one was the shepherd's love for his sheep. The second one was the role of the Spirit in the world. And the third was the role of the Spirit in the apostles. I hope that I've showed these points to you clearly through our text. I want to close with some practical application and encouragement. In light of the beauty of God's grace to his beloved, I want to say to you, take heart, Christian. If you are in a season of backsliding and sin, repent and return to your first love, Jesus. If you are truly in him, he has paid for that sin. Stop focusing on that and drowning and turn your eyes back to him. If you feel out of step with God, pick up the book. Grab his word. Dig into it. 
The Spirit has revealed to you all truth via the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Let it correct you and bring you back in line with your Lord. If you are hurting or you feel distant from God, know that the Spirit of God dwells in all the believers. He is never far from you. Remind yourselves of this truth, just like Jesus was reminding the disciples in what would be the darkest hours of their life. It was and it still is better that Christ fulfilled his work and sent the Spirit because we have hope now in Jesus' finished work and the Spirit is our confirmation of that completed work. Praise God. Christian, it is finished. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God until he finishes making his enemies Christ's footstool. If that doesn't bring you great comfort, I don't know what else I can encourage you with. For those of you joining us this morning who may not be saved, it really is my earnest prayer that you've clearly heard the gospel this morning. That the Holy Spirit would be moving on your heart that you would not remain dead in your sin. Jesus saves sinners. If you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, then repent and believe. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You do not have to remain enslaved to sin and separated from God. Trust in Jesus And it will reveal to you that God has saved you by grace through faith. You do not have to remain under the ruler of this world. There is freedom in Christ and in him alone. Pick up the scriptures. Search them to see if what I have proclaimed to you today is true. Please, if you have any questions or you're confused about anything I've said, follow up with me. There there really is no greater joy in my life than to dig into the word of God with other people. Will you bow your heads as I close us in prayer? Father, thank you for this day. God, thank you for the faithful apostles who carried the word from your spirit to the scriptures and to us. Holy Spirit, we are still desperate for your work to help us understand, to help us apply, to help us see when we're just buried in struggle and sin. We need you, Lord. It is my earnest prayer, God, that your spirit would be moving on dead hearts this morning, that you would be waking hearts to life, that we could celebrate with your children whom you save. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.